When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan-made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from Cities Week. It's your club, and this is your show. Well, it's not often that a nil-nil draw provides the sort of talking points that the stalemate in Copenhagen did, especially if you forget everything that happened in the second half and focus solely on the first 45 minutes. We'll get into that on today's Blue Moon podcast, along with more on the Premier League situation as Manchester City produced yet another dominant win. Look at the scoreline, and it seemed a really simple afternoon against Southampton, but this was impressive for different reasons. City's unbeaten record faces its next test on Sunday too, as Pep Guardiola takes his side to Anfield. We'll get a Liverpool perspective on the game a bit later on but let's be honest it feels like City have a great opportunity to take three points from Merseyside and a ground that they often find life very difficult at we'll also have something for fans of old City goals too the man behind the Retro City Goals Instagram account will be on the show talking about the great and the good of City teams of years gone by finding the net in all manner of circumstances so let's get going I'm David Mooney joining me for this one I've got two City fans we start with Bob Tour. Hi Mooney how are you? Not too bad thanks mate and Ali Fogg Hi there, hi everyone. Ali, a uh, bit a while since you've been on, how are you well? Are you keeping well? I am keeping well, a little bit chilly today because I'm trying hard not to put the heating on as much as I would have done in previous years. So I've been sitting in a, a Blue City beanie cap trying to uh, keep the uh, keep the heat in my head. We like that, we do like that. Bob, you well? <laughs> yeah, I'm good, thank you. I've got the, the uh, week off work uh, this week, so that's very nice just to sort of uh, slow down a bit and... Um, and, well, I was going to say chilling. enjoy the football. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally chilling out. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to say enjoy the football, but... Yeah, but then that game happened uh, the other night. Oh, of course. Was terrible, yeah, yeah. wasn't it? So, which we're going to talk about, obviously. But Yeah, yeah. well, let's, let's get into that. We'll start uh, with Rodri's disallowed goal, um, because here here's the ruling, basically, that I, I think has been made. Um, I don't think this has been disallowed because of an accidental handball, because that can only disallow the goal if it's uh, handball by the scorer. And in this case, uh, it went um, it went from Mares to Alvarez to, uh, to Rodri. Uh, that means that the decision was a deliberate handball by Mares, who passed to Alvarez. Um, Likely given, Ali, because uh, Mahrez's arm moved towards the ball. Uh, with all that in mind, uh, what do you make of it? What do I make of it? I'm I'm going to get a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to swap my uh, my blue beanie hat for a tinfoil one. Um, my best explanation of what happened is that the referee and the VAR team actually forgot the rules. Initially, they ruled it out because they thought any handball in the lead up to a goal disallowed it, which was the rule until for, for a couple of years, until 2001. Um, sorry, 2021. And then uh, when they realised they'd messed up, suddenly the, the story changed to it, it had to be a deliberate handball. It clearly was not an intentional handball. Um, I think Maris couldn't move his arm out of the way because of the two players around him, I think they were forcing his arm forward onto the ball. Um, I don't any way he, he really could have been expected to to get his arm out of the way um and the whole thing is a farce is is how i stand on it um i really think we've got to the position 
where the rules change in so many subtle but important ways so often that players don't know what the rules are, referees don't know what the rules are, uh, managers don't know what the rules are, and probably most importantly of all, fans don't know what the rules are. So when you're watching a game, you cannot properly understand what is happening. Um, And that is a nonsense. Um, I actually don't really... Well, tinfoil-hatted conspiracy theories aside, I don't blame the officials too much. Um, I I blame the people that write these ever increasingly complicated uh, laws and interpretations of laws um, which have the effect of becoming so complicated that any mistake can be explained away. Ah, it's it, yeah. just an interpretation. It's, it's um, almost, in, in many ways, it's almost kind of unintended consequences, isn't it? The, the number of times where we've had to fix it because something's happened that we need to be exactly able to that, explain. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly. It's like it's it's um, like nailing on another panel to the uh, to the uh, car that you've built from scratch and, and hoping that it'll it'll suddenly drive in a straight line now. And it just every time it gets worse and worse and worse. And it, it it just is a farce. Um, the only thing I will I will say in uh, kind of compensation or whatever the word is uh, is if we're going to have a Champions League game where everything goes comically wrong. Um, then at least it was one where it you know, didn't matter too much, and particularly after the result later, it mattered even less. But, yeah, um, comedy abounds. Yeah, I mean, the the, the thing is, Bob, um, as I say, like it's been deemed deliberate because Mahrez's arm moved towards the ball. Um, like It's it's almost like it's in his running pattern anyway. Like Your arm is always going to move in that direction. So it can't just be as simple as handball is when you're like a deliberate handball is when your arm moves towards the ball, especially if the ball's dropping from a height that you can't really see because there are two players around you. Yeah, I mean it's it's such a, a hard thing to rule on, I think, because deliberate, um, you sort of get into the realms of trying to read somebody's mind as to whether they intentionally t- touch the ball or not, unless they've like stuck their arm out like a goalkeeper would to save a shot. How can you possibly say it's deliberate and? In this particular case, Mares was under pressure from two of the players. The ball was dropping out of the sky. The trajectory of the ball barely changed once he actually did touch it with his arm. So how could they possibly say it's deliberate? It's beyond me. Well, th- this is the other thing. Like If, if none of the Copenhagen players realised or appealed, and none of the City players realised and were sheepish about it, like should it be penalised? Well, I mean, I, I don't. It's kind of irrelevant, I think, whether the players appeal or not, because ultimately the referees are there to enforce the rules, whether players are aware of them or see something or not. Um, so I, I don't think that really plays into it. But what does annoy me is um, is whenever the referees call to go and look at the monitor on the side of the pitch, you just, everybody just knows the original decision is going to get overturned. I'm not sure I've ever seen one where the referee's gone to the side of the pitch, looked at it, and then just stuck to the original decision. Um, so it's it's almost just like for show, uh, which really gets gets me to be honest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really I'm really not sure that the whether the Copenhagen players saw it or not matters really. Because that that also Bob brings me on to the City penalty because uh, again, none of the City players saw it, none of the Copenhagen players saw it. The only people that that, that saw it were were the the VAR team. And I mean, again, I I kind of think that one's a bit harsh because it, it looks like it hits him above the. That we're told about this T-shirt line on on the arm that kind of comes from the armpit. Looks like it hits him above that. Yeah, I mean, if you compare it to the famous Rodri handball against Everton, 
Like he didn't handle it. He, he, he can't, the, 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 we, we, we came to the conclusion that he didn't handle it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I must admit, when I was watching the game live, I, I wasn't clear on what the handball rules are. Um, but I was just glad we got a penalty because of the feeling aggrieved about the Mares one. Um, but yeah, I mean, had it been against us, I would have been pretty annoyed about it because it just was... It was so inconsequential to the general pattern of play anyway. Um, it didn't really affect what happened. Uh, and if memory serves correctly, it took ages for the VAR to even sort of mention it. Um, so, yeah, it was all just a bit of a farce, really, wasn't it? Yeah. And then finally, Ali, that brings us on to the red card. This one seems to be the only one where we where we can all go around and go, yeah, that was, that was probably fair enough, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. I would just add something to what Bob said about the, uh, the penalty we got given, though, um, which, of my sympathy, was slightly curtailed by the fact that the uh, the offending player, the one who committed the handball, he committed the handball because he had his uh, hand on the shirt of one of the City players and he was pushing him away in, in a way that's actually a foul itself. And if he hadn't been grabbing the shirt of a City player, then he wouldn't have handled the ball. <laughs> so that kind of, that, that diminished my sympathy I might have had for them otherwise. But uh, yeah, as Bob said, it, it, um, it didn't count for anything in the end. But the, uh, the red card now is, it's, uh, I think... The referee—it was yet another one. The referee didn't give it at the time, did he? He got well, that, called by VAR. Yeah, um, that that and worries me slightly because the only thing that I can see in that is, particularly if you'd seen it from the referee's side, which was the other side to the cameras, um, the Copenhagen player dragged his left foot in a quite egregious and, and spectacular way in order to bring himself down. Um, so right. he felt, yeah, you know, he felt the the arms were being linked. And you know he was being held back, you know, with it with kind of quite a subtle link of arms. Uh, but then he made sure the referee saw with what was by the rules of the game a fairly blatant bit of simulation. Um, it, he fell over because he dragged his own left foot, not because he was pulled over by right. uh, by what, Gomez. What I was going to say was uh, my my understanding of the VAR protocol is that the referee looks at the incident and, and describes what he's seen to the uh, to the VAR, and the VAR will then say, actually, no, that's not what's happened, or that is what ha- what's happened. And so I, I couldn't come to terms with what the, what the referee could possibly have said to the VAR that would make the VAR say, well, actually, something entirely different has happened. Come and have a look at it. So if that if, if that's it if, the, if 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 it looks like he's uh, he's simulated from the other side then uh, indeed then I guess... and of course the other thing from uh, to to blow my own theory out of the water um, if he did think that was the explanation for why he fell over he should have been booking the Copenhagen player for simulation um, yeah. and because because you know if that's what you thought was hap- had happened um, that's how he should have acted but of course we know that very often players do simulate and aren't booked even when the referee knows that's full well what they're doing. It has to be above a certain bar of um, blatant ticking the mickey before <laughs> before you ever get a yellow card for that. Yeah, uh, but just on uh, Gomez, Bob, as well, um, I don't think we should let this uh, this incident kind of blot his copybook because I think he's had a reasonable start to, to life at City beyond this. Yeah, I think he's uh, looked pretty tidy. Um, if, you, if you compare him to Zinchenko, who he's kind of replaced, I would say, he doesn't look a huge amount different, but he's just—he's got. He looks a bit better going forward, so um, a bit more pacey and direct uh, in, a, in an attacking sense. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty pleased with him. And to be honest, like I—I I wouldn't mind seeing him start against Liverpool, um, in spite of this red card. Um, so yeah, I'm—I'm yeah, I'm really chuffed with him. 
Yeah, just on uh, on Mares as well, Bob. Um, how how do you think he will be doing right now? Given that uh, obviously the he 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 had a he he was the reason why the goal was disallowed. We don't really put too much blame on him for that, but you know he'll be thinking about that. He then went on and missed the penalty, and then when City had a man sent off and they wanted to bring a defender on, he was the player that got subbed. He, I'm I'm basically I'm just a bit worried that he's not going to be in the right frame of mind for a while. Yeah, it's difficult to call because um, Pep didn't play him. At, I think was it either. Was it the last season where he was, Algeria didn't qualify for the World Cup and yeah. he just basically said he wasn't in the, the right frame of mind to play, which from that from the outside you can't really account for those kind of things. But obviously, as you know, Pep will know his players and sort of take that into account. So I've always thought he's doesn't seem to be a particularly like sensitive guy in that sense, but seemingly he is. So yeah, it does. It does. It is maybe the case that he is a bit sort of short on confidence and then what happened uh, on Tuesday may play into that because um, he's had a bit of a slow start hasn't he really um, but then he did quite well against Southampton um, and yeah he's he seemed to start alright against Copenhagen uh, was quite involved in the, a lot of the play so so yeah it's a hard one to call but um, I mean, I don't think he'll start against Liverpool anyway, um, just because his form's not as good as the other forward players. So whether he takes that to heart, I'm not too sure, but it's it's possible, I think. Yeah, Ali, it's, uh, it has been a slow start to the season. I, 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 in terms of um, kind of player mentality, it's one thing that we don't often think about. But I think I think Mahrez this season might be an example of, 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 of what can happen when you get in the wrong frame of mind. It can do. I mean, I would say... If- First of all, um, of everything uh, Maros has done or been criticised for, um, I don't blame it. Don't blame him at all for the handball for the Rodrigo um, or non goal, and I don't really blame him for missing the penalty. It wasn't the best penalty, but if you step up and you're the penalty taker, uh, you know Maros is probably a, a ten out of twelve penalty taker, um, and he's really good at them. And even well, unless you're Yaya Toure, even the best penalty to, uh, takers do miss sometimes. Um, and you know that that's you know the rub of the green. Um, what I am much more concerned about with Mares is when you compare him to the other players who sometimes play in his position on the right wing, um, or when you compare to uh, what the rest of the team is doing and, and the potential of our other players. Um, I don't think he is fitting into the uh, tactical formations and the the team play that we are now using in order to get the ball basically to Erling Haaland to to score a goal. Um, you see it when uh, when Phil Foden is playing on the right. He and Kevin De Bruyne have repeatedly it must have happened, must have happened like four, five, six times this season. Um, they've pulled off these little one-twos and one-two-threes, which then release the ball into the middle for Haaland, um, and he taps it in and and scores a goal. Um, It looks very instinctive. It looks very uh, straightforward. um, And that's because uh, KDB and Phil Foden are operating at such high levels. When you see Mares in the same position... uh, Kevin will make the run outside the fullback, waiting for Maris to, to slide the ball into him the way Phil Foden does, and Maris cuts inside and shoots and misses. Um, and that keeps happening again and again and again. And that's where my concerns are with Maris. Uh It's not really about individual specific mistakes or 
even you know, even about his you know, ball control or his energy, all, all of which can be criticised. I'm not sure he's quite got his head around the way our team plays now, um, and that's my concern. Having said that, I also value Riyad Mahrez as an incredibly talented and valuable member of our squad, and I would be fully supportive if Pep was making the decision that in order to get Mahrez into the place he wants him to be and performing at the levels he, he needs from him, the solution to that is to keep picking him again and again and again until he gets it. That you know that works for me and I, I'm okay with that. I'm not calling for Mahrez to be dropped. I'm happy to trust Pep on that. Um, but I don't think we should uh, I don't think we should be under any illusions that, that Mahrez is you know, in the best form of his life. He clearly isn't. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the Southampton game as well, uh, because, uh, Bob, I thought, uh, in many ways, it, like, like I said in the intro, it, it looks a really comfortable City win. And, you know, you look at the scoreline and say, oh, 4-0, City just strolled it. Um, but I don't think they did. I think City had to be really, really good to win that game uh, because Southampton were pressing high. They were they were really trying to cause City problems at the back. Um, how impressed were you with the way that City dealt with that? Um, yeah, pretty impressed. I mean, I remember saying uh, after about 10 minutes of the game uh, to Casey, who I sit next to at the ground, um, that Southampton were giving us much more of a game than United ever did uh, the week before. Um, and I guess that's a bit of a... Well, it's a bit of an insult to Southampton, really, because United were woeful. But yeah, I mean, I was worried about the game beforehand because of what they did to us last last year. We, we found it so hard to to beat them. Um, but I think we're on a little bit of a different level this year. And obviously, the Harlem factor um, it just makes such a huge difference, doesn't it? I mean, um, he he's just so dangerous that he occupies several defenders at once, which just makes everybody else's job. Um, even it's easier. Just more um, space, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I guess also, um, you know, given we went into that game off the back of the United game and also winning in midweek in the Champions League really comfortably, the confidence was really, really high. So, um, yeah, it was really impressive. Um, and like like you said, it, it did seem comfortable in the end, but first half particularly, I don't think it was a particularly comfortable game. We had to work really, really hard for it. So, yeah, it was excellent. Yeah, Ali, the uh, the system that Southampton played got them two draws last season. So you don't you, you don't you're not surprised that they came and tried to do it again. Um, what was the difference? Do you think this year beyond the fact that that Harland was up top? I think there was one really big difference, which is that the games uh, over the last couple of seasons um, they've had Romeo, uh, who's no longer there. And also Ward Prowse being on really quite uh, exceptional form when he's played us in the last game or the one before that. Um, so they were holding the centre of midfield uh, in a way that they really didn't last week. Um, of course, we, it's a real shame that Lavia uh, is injured and, and wasn't playing because I think he was the player that came in to do that job for Southampton um, and they didn't have that. Uh, and we did just kind of breeze through the middle of their midfield anytime we wanted to. Um, I will say, you know, we made it quite hard work. Uh, it was a slightly strange game in that we we played quite well, but didn't get goals. And Haaland actually missed a couple of, by his standard, sitters, um, which, you know, had had all the chances that uh, came Haaland's way, landed in the back of the net. We'd have been looking at a much higher score much earlier, and we wouldn't even be having this conversation about, you know, uh, any any... Uh, downsides or reservations. Um, but yeah, I think uh, Southampton are basically just not the same team 
that they were a year or two ago. Um, they're really struggling this year. And I'm guessing that the, the big hole in their middle of the middle of their midfield is a large part of the reason why. Yeah, um, Bernardo was was quietly uh, brilliant. I thought Bob. Um, you know, Cancelo was getting all the headlines for for the way he played. Obviously, the the forward players were were, were getting the headlines as well for the goals they scored. Um, but Bernardo dropping in to get the ball off off, off Rodri really helped City get forward. I thought um, he for someone who doesn't really want to be in Manchester, um, he's he's doing all right in Manchester, isn't he? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he looks really at home in central midfield as well. Um, there was one point in the second half where I was just—he was picking up the ball from deep position, and I, I was just looked at him and thought, "Is he really happy in that position?" And I thought for a moment, like he'd maybe be happier playing on the wing um, or something like that. But then I just thought, no, he's—he's he's just so good at what he does in the middle. Like he's like a metronome, isn't he? And I know Sam Lee talks a lot about Pep's obsession with that pause like um keeping things moving um he'll be able to articulate it much better than i ever will but uh bernardo fills that role perfectly and i know gundon is the other guy in the team that really does that since david silva left so um having two options now that just do that role so well is is like ideal really because we can just rotate bernardo and gundon as we see fit um but yeah he's he's so sort of tenacious and he he just doesn't ever stop. Um, I mean, there's always the famous example, isn't there? A few seasons ago in the uh, 2-1 against Liverpool in the January, um, where he, he like covered about 13 kilometres in one match. Um, and that's kind of sums him up when he plays in the middle. He just He's everywhere and he presses constantly. And obviously, he's just got a great attacking ability to find really good passes. And occasionally, he's got a really good shot on him. So, yeah, yeah he's... he's, he's Really good in the middle, I think. Did you see the viral video of him this week, uh, Ali? I don't think I did. What was that? Uh, he basically he's leaning up against the front door, and and somebody comes over to him and, and just kind of like says uh, Bernardo Silva, and he's like, "My friend, what are you doing?" Um, and then agrees to take a picture with him. But it just it just looks like the shadiest man in Manchester leaning <laughs> up against this door. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I'll, I, I, I think I've said this before, possibly in this pod, but uh, I think one of the most iconic uh, images of Manchester City over the last, you know, the the Pep Guardiola era is uh, Bernardo standing in his uh, shabby anorak with his strip tied round his waist and a cup of tea in his hand when the Liverpool um, uh, Guard of Honour was supposed <laughs> to be happening. And I would very happily put a statue to Bernardo Silva somewhere outside the Etihad in that exact pose with a cup of tea in one hand and a bottle of water in the other. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Ad-free episodes are available on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. 
Just quickly on uh, Akanji as well, Ali, because um, he he was at right back. He made it a it, it was he was nominally at right back because he made it practically a back three, so that can consel- yeah. so that Cancelo could go and be a, a, a winger. Um, given City's options and and injuries at the moment, do you think we'll see a bit more of that in in the coming weeks? I, I presume it's likely since we have so few other options available to us. Uh, and it, he's, he's what a revelation he has been. I mean, I. I I knew we all we all trusted the the city backroom team when they brought him in and reckoned he could do a job and because then we bought him for you know you know price of a bag of chips and a bottle of Imto. Uh he has just been absolutely phenomenal. Um, one thing I noticed really early on, like in his, in his first game or two, uh, when uh, Cancelo was playing on the right, so nominally as right back, but would of course be playing in basically in Kevin De Bruyne's position somewhere, you know, advanced of the number eight. Uh, Akanji just drifted over so easily, so naturally towards the, the right wing. Uh, I mean, at times he almost had chalk in his boots and he was just covering that side of the pitch in a way that, um, Kyle Walker, uh, prior to this season when he was persuaded to start overlapping as an incoming inside. Um, Kyle Walker used to just effortlessly control the whole his whole quarter of the pitch so that anything that came into his quarter, um, he would mop it up and sweep it away and, and uh, solve the problem. Akanji is now doing that job really well. Yeah. Uh, whether he is nominally a centre-back playing on the right or whether he is officially a right-back doesn't actually make a huge amount of difference to me. Um, You know, the way we use full-backs, I I, I think we should almost, we need to develop a new language to describe the kind of position that Cancelo plays because I'm not even sure he's a defender in any meaningful sense anymore. Uh, But Akanji very much is and he's an absolutely exceptional defender and he's really is one of the, you know, uh, obviously on a, a much less uh, spectacular scale to Haaland, um, but Akanji is one of the success stories of the season. He's been an absolute revelation. Yeah, so what Guardiola does to us make us not have the words to describe what he's doing with the team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, the man defies the English language. Um, let's let's finish the first part of the show on Haaland, Bob. Um, again, he got his goal, low cross, smashed into the net. That It feels like that is going to be the typical Haaland goal, doesn't it? You know, he finds it, he finds himself in the right place in the box and he just wellies it as hard as he can. Well, I mean, he scores so many, it will be one of several types of goals he scores, I imagine, because he's, he's already scored quite a good variety already. But, I mean, that goal against Southampton, though, we've seen so many times over the years under Pep, that kind of pretty much precise pattern of play. Um, but it's, it's just... So it's only the names that change, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's obviously just got that ability to be there at the right place at the right time, which, you know, the last couple of seasons when we've not really had a proper out-and-out number nine it's sometimes would do that move and there'd just be nobody there or someone just a couple of yards away. Um, but he just seems to know where to be all the time, which is just incredible. So I think we will see that goal a lot and um, we already have. Um, but then you'll see all manner of other types of goals, like some of the goals he's got, I think the hat-trick against Forest. So it was just really kind of scruffy goals that we just never really scored last season. Um, so there's all manner of types, but the only one he's kind of missing, I think, so far is like a, a long-range screamer. So, um, 
I think the closest he got was the Wolves goal. But it's not, not, yeah, it's not a screamer, that is it. Yeah, no. <laughs> exactly. Definitely doesn't um, count as a screamer. Um, Ali, just on on his relationship with the other forward players, um, I'm interested what you what you think of uh, how City have changed uh, with Haaland because even at the start of the season, it felt like they were trying to get the ball to him really, really quickly. Um, and now it seems like they're they're a lot more patient with getting it there, and especially Foden and De Bruyne um, seem to know when the right time is to to, to slide it into him. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and it's not at all surprising. Um, One of the things I think we always need to remember is that City players play with such uh, elegance and skill, and uh, and they make it look so easy, particularly when we're playing possession football. uh, It looks as if everything is just coming like, you know, these players were born to it. It's completely intuitive and instinctive. The reality is, it's not intuitive, it's not instinctive, it's the product of hundreds or thousands of hours of individual technical coaching and team formation drills and practice. And when you are used to players, you, your teammates being in a position, or a particular position on the pitch, uh, you can turn and you can play blind to, uh, uh, you know, play into an area and know that your, player, your teammate will be there. Uh, when you fundamentally change the, the shape in which you play in, in the way we have this year. Uh, so our, you know, our, the, the formation of all 11 players on our pitch is significantly different now. Um, those intuitive, instinctive decisions where you just turn and you, you know, play a, play a ball behind you to where you know a player is going to be, um, it takes time for, for that to uh, settle in and, and, for the players to be where you expect them to be. Uh, And what we're seeing, I think, almost with every week that goes by is the ease and the naturalness with which our uh, creative players are uh, you know, building up the building up formations with each other, and then releasing Haaland. Uh, like saying, you know, the 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 classic example is uh, De Bruyne playing to Phil Foden, who then plays a ball around the opposing fullback, which Kevin De Bruyne runs onto and then pulls back to Haaland, who's in the middle to tap it in. Um, we've I mentioned it before. We've seen that goal several times now, um, and the more we do it, the easier. And uh, you know, more, more you know, naturally, it will begin to look. Um, and I've absolutely no idea that, by the t- and no, no doubt that by the time we get to next March, April, May, uh, all of that teamwork will look so much more easy, and believe it or not, be so much more devastating at the end of the season than it is now, because we are still learning. Our players are still learning how to play in this new formation, and that's entirely understandable and absolutely fine. Yeah. Uh, just one last thing on uh, Harlem, Bob. Um, I just want to get your thoughts on uh, the release clause story this week because it's been uh, going round and round and round. Uh, the situation, as uh, we can kind of glean, this is uh, generally from Paul Bias at The Athletic, uh, that there is a release clause in Harlem's contract, but it only activates in the summer of 2024. Uh, it's for 200 million euros or around about 175.5 million pounds. It will decrease every year after 2024. Uh, no Premier League team can trigger that clause anyway uh, and there's no clause for any specific team so there's no different uh, details for for example Real Madrid or PSG or anybody like that it is just 200 million euros from the summer of uh, of 2024 um what are you what are your feelings on it all because for me it, it's basically it's just a formalization of the the policy that city have anyway if you if you want to leave then you can leave just bring us an offer yeah i mean i guess it's fine but then on the other hand i'm a 
a little bit annoyed about it because I kind of like the idea of us just being able to hold people to ransom yeah, and just <laughs> say whatever we want to scare them away. So it's a little bit annoying in that sense because there's a, what, about three clubs, you'd probably say, that would be able to trigger that release clause. Um, but as you and your colleagues on the Athletic podcast were saying, um, you know, it's not just the clause, it's everything else, the whole package, the agents, fees and all the everything else that goes into a, a, a huge transfer like that. Um, so it's going to be way more than 200 million. Um, so it is going to make it incredibly difficult for anybody to pull that off. Um, but it, I guess it is possible. Um, so that does worry me a little bit. But on the other hand, like you say, it's a formalization of the kind of policy we yeah. do anyway. So it's not that much of a bigger deal honestly my, my gut is don't worry about it nobody's tr- nobody's triggering that clause don't worry about it well yeah i mean uh, yeah i mean also i just don't want to really get worried about something like that because it's just we're, what a couple of months into having harland so let's just enjoy it whilst we've got it because it's amazing so. the only uh you know, trigger that actually matters is harland wanting to leave um if uh, Erling Haaland is happy and scoring goals and having a great time at City, as all the indications are now he is doing. Um, it, it's inconceivable why he would want to go to anywhere else. It's not even like he's got the, the defence of being a um, kind of uh, sun-loving Latin type who's missing the, uh, the weather. Uh, he's, he's a bloody Norwegian. He grew up in, you know, born in Leeds and grew up in Manchester. Uh, he can cope with the weather too. Um, so, uh, yeah, unless he uh, makes a, the terrible mistake of, of getting himself a, an Italian supermodel wife who doesn't like the food, it's really hard to imagine why he would ever want to leave. Yeah, I, uh, I, I love I love the idea that he'd turn around to City and say, actually, I want to leave because I want to go back to somewhere where it doesn't get dark at night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, that's uh, fine. Off you go. Uh, right. Well, uh, let's let's move uh, our attention to uh, Liverpool and Anfield on Sunday. Uh, let's begin by getting a Liverpool perspective on this weekend's match. I've been speaking to Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Wrap to get a view of what the mood is like at Anfield at the moment. I felt Liverpool had bounce into this season uh, and instead of done whatever the opposite of bouncing is squashed uh, <laughs> their way into the into the season to be honest with you I think it's it's become one of those things that doesn't have one answer you know and I think that everyone not everyone but I think a number of Liverpool supporters as football supporters are want to do would like there to be one answer but I think there's a number of factors sort of all at play simultaneously um within that you know I think that the the toll of Everything really. Liverpool haven't played, haven't finished a season under Jurgen Klopp, uh, where the final game hasn't mattered. Um, they've only really, well, with the exception of the COVID of the the, the the season where we win the league and, yeah. and then it's interrupted by COVID. Every other season, the final games had had a great deal riding on it all the way through, and I think that's that's played a part. That that's added its burden as well. Um, but across the board, really, Liverpool ultimately have just been disappointing. Uh, there's, as I say, I think the circumstances around that, I think there's conversations to be had around, you know, what Liverpool do or don't do in the transfer market these days. I think there's there's a lot of little bits and pieces um, that make up make up this this situation that we found ourselves in. And therefore, that's complicated because a lot of little bits and pieces do not lend themselves nicely to being able to say, well, if you just do this, this and this, everything will be fixed. Yeah, I wondered how much of of the problems that you've been having this season are simply that it's 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 difficult to say one like there's one reason or another reason, but but how much of it has been losing Sadio Mane? 
I think it's not helped, and because I, I think there's something that Sadio, whether he played left wing or played centre forward for Liverpool, was really good at was let, helping Liverpool get fifty yards up the pitch. And I think we've lost that um, to a, to a, to a slight extent. And I think that also we also didn't have Diogo Jota uh, at the start of the campaign either. He he had a, an interrupted pre season, so ultimately. I think we tend to think in a footballing sense that if one attacker moves out uh, at one point of the season and, and another one comes in, they're the direct replacements. But I don't think Darwin Nunez is the replacement for Sadio Mane. Uh, I think the replacement for Sadio Mane is a combination of Luis Diaz and, and, and Diogo Jota. And we didn't have Jota at the start of the campaign. So I think that hasn't helped. Um, simultaneously, I think there are other factors in play. I think that in a really strange way, Virgil van Dijk has started this season the way I expect him to start last season after the extended injury layoff. I think he's not quite been entirely himself. Um, and that's even stranger when you think that the second half of last season, he did look back to his best. Um, he feels now like he, you know, maybe there is some sort of injury hangover there or maybe it's that he's just getting a bit more exposed or maybe it's a bit of both. I think within the idea of him being a bit more exposed, I think that... Fabinho was already finding, I think he's not very good um, constructively, Fabinho, from March to May last season, to the point that this isn't hindsight. I was saying I didn't want him to start the Champions League final in Paris. I wanted to go with Henderson, Thiago and Keita as the midfield three, uh, because Fabinho had, got, had a recent injury, but he just began to look really fatigued like a, a lad who's just played too much football for too long and that's continued into this season as well and then on top of that you know I don't think that uh, Henderson started the season putting really good 90s together I think the issue has been there's, there's the, I think Jordan's looked himself for extended periods but then had a dip for a period of time in the game and he might well have found, found his way back but then he's found that a little bit difficult Thiago got injured first game away at Fulham Um Within there, Canate was obviously being groomed to replace Matip. He got he got injured in a mad preseason game. We played that uh, we played in the immediate aftermath of the Community Shield um, against Strasbourg, and and, and Canate got an injury in that one. And then you know I think obviously uh, Trent Alexander Arnold's travails have been widely documented um, and don't need to sort of be got gone into. But if the other bits of the defence in the midfield aren't functioning, the area where most teams we play choose to attack Liverpool is down that flank. So. Almost logically, Trent Alexander-Arnold becomes the footballer who's most exposed and ends up with the most work to do because it has been forever thus. That is where teams have attacked Liverpool for five years. And the manager's made the point that we can defend like this because we've done it for 200 games. And the manager's made the point that you know there's, there's, there's a wide body of evidence that sides were already trying to do this, but they just couldn't make it work. But because other bits of the team are malfunctioning, Trent, who isn't you know a pure natural defender, he came through not as a defender, will therefore find it a little bit tougher. He's not Kyle Walker, um, and that's absolutely fine because he adds other things going forward. So all of that's added into this. And then, you know, you can go, you can you can keep you can keep sort of moving through. And the other part of this is that I don't think Klopp has cha- mass- has looked to massively change the shape and tactics in the last few well, certainly up until, let's say hypothetically, the home game against Rangers. I don't think he's looked to change the shape and tactics enormously. I think he's been moving towards something that looks a little bit more like four two four over the course of the calendar year. Um but when you're suddenly, you know, picking Harvey Elliott and that all looks a little bit more nailed on where you can't really, you know, it now looks like not four three three but four two one three. And then that moves again. So it's now where Elliott's been playing Diogo Jota suddenly starts to play and that looks like four two four. 
then I think you you sort of end up on that journey. And 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 I don't quite. I think that they might have they might have over calibrated in that direction early in the campaign, and and now. They've just been trying to sort of recalibrate. And that's before you get to the idea of could they have invested in another midfielder? They wanted Shua many at the start of the window. Some of the players I've named within there are approaching all the wrong side of 30. So I think all of this, as I say, I don't think this is I don't think there's a player X has just been rubbish, which is sort of where the, the it's felt as though firstly it's turned it turned to on Trent Alexander Arnold. Um I don't think that's an analysis that makes sense. I don't think, well, you definitely should have done another midfielder. You know, you can always say you should have bought one more. And I'm on balance I was arguing Liverpool should have bought one more. But I don't think that that becomes, you know, it's not quite as straightforward as that because they could have bought one more and that would still not explain the way Thiago, Fabinho, Canate and Virgil van Dijk defend in their own penalty area against Arsenal for the goal that makes it 3-2. You know, th- th- these are all wonderful senior professionals who genuinely played like children for two minutes. And there's, <laughs> loads, of, there's loads of instances over the course of the whole campaign of Liverpool's stellar players, the very, very best ones, acting like absolute idiots in split seconds. It happens practically every game. And that's why Sunday is hugely concerning because you're coming up against a side who are brilliant brilliant at putting sides to the sword who are playing well. Sides that will, every single half, give you two chances, two easy chances, who who will act like doom brains twice in a half. That's the sort of side that City can really punish. and, And that's why, you know, regardless of putting seven past Rangers, Sunday's a concern. If you enjoy the show, please give it a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. Going into Sunday as well, um, you do have a lot of injury concerns, don't you? We do, but I'm sort of, I'm relatively relaxed about that, which um, some Liverpool supporters won't be. Not having Diaz is a shame uh, because... I think he's been our, our best player uh, in, in terms of grabbing games by the scruff of the neck over the course of the season, but at least clarifies the thoughts and the options for the manager. Um, you know, Joe Gomez does well last night against Rangers, and I really like Gomez as a player. I think he's, you know, I think he's a run of games away from from showing always the sort of footballer he is. I I, I adore him. Um, he had a nightmare in Napoli, but then he's not the only one. Um, and I'm fine with Gomez at right back in that, again, it clarifies Liverpool's thought processes. We haven't got one of the best playmakers on the planet playing right back. What we've got is a centre-half playing right back. So we can sort that out uh, and you've got to play around that and you don't have to overcomplicate and you need to you need to sort of rearrange your thought process on that. Joel Matip isn't starting at centre-half. He's injured. I'd rather have started Canate for this one against Manchester City anyway, so that doesn't feel like it's it's the end of the world. For me, the the, the bigger issues really are the issues around sharpness. You know, are the other players who will play the game sufficiently sharp at this moment in this season to play against Manchester City? And, you know, I'm, it's almost the residual injury concerns, if you know what I mean, that I'm more concerned about than than the idea of, of where a few of them are up to right now. You know, uh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain's back in training, which is good news. I don't think he'll feature in this one. I'd like Curtis Jones to be around. I'd probably pick Curtis Jones if he'd, if he'd had some, some minutes uh, recently for this game against Manchester City in the heart of the midfield. But he isn't around, and, and that's a bit frustrating. But then we haven't really had him for the entirety of the season. So... You know, for me, the manager's going to have, you know, he's going to have an 11 and he's going to have five subs. Uh, five subs that you'd be comfortable bringing on in this game at some point as it wears on. And 
in the round, I would like Liverpool's players to stop getting injuries. But for, for this one that's coming on Sunday, you know, you, you play the hand that you're dealt. And, yeah. and and I think that I think that Liverpool having that mentality a little bit more actually is no bad thing because I think at some sort of point they've got to recalibrate the reality of what this season has become for them in the league, which is about stopping the bleeding, about putting a little bit of a run together, and then from there having an attitude of right, let's make sure we're still in everything. And I don't mean the league title, by the way, but I certainly mean top four. Let's make sure we're still in everything by the time we get to we get to the World Cup, because then we recalibrate, we get it sorted, and we look to have a really strong spring. Yeah. How do you think, um, in terms of of the weekend? Um, how do you think the game will go? Because, like, the, still from from my side and, and my experiences of, of City going to Anfield. Liverpool can be in as poor form as you like. It's still a very, very tough game. I'm still not expecting this to be an easy one for City at all. I, I think the circumstances are, are good for City in that that they're going there at a time when Liverpool are feeling a bit down about themselves when they don't have some key players. Uh, but equally, if Liverpool get something out of this game, if they get the three points, I'm not surprised. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, when we've talked about this game last couple of seasons, Dave, or certainly last season and, 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 and until COVID hit, my attitude's always been with this fixture, home or away, for both sides, all three outcomes are equally likely. So, you know, I can see a world where there's a City win, I can see a world where there's a Liverpool win, I can see a world where there's a draw. And I certainly felt that way going into last season's games, you know, and in the end, City don't win any of them last season. Uh, and Liverpool Liverpool sneak the sneak the semi-final win. Um, however, that said, I don't feel that that's the case this time. You know, I, th- I feel as though we can we can recalibrate that a little bit and say that you know, if we if we were given Liverpool a one in three chance previously, I'd now maybe give Liverpool a one in six chance. Um, and I'd, I'd move those chips uh, that I've just took off Liverpool across onto Manchester City for the reason I've said. The Arsenal game away from home is about the angriest I think I've ever been with a Liverpool team. Um, and the reason why isn't because you got beat at Arsenal, because you can get beat at Arsenal, you can get beat at Arsenal in any season. The reason why wasn't because, you know, the ship three goals. It was the nature and the manner of all three goals. So yeah, Liverpool you, you got, almost you almost beat yourselves, didn't you? Yeah, and, and Arsenal play well as well. That's not so it's not to begrudge Arsenal, but you end up in a situation where you know, you've been conceding early in games and you go into the most ebullient stadium currently in the country uh, with a team that are very much built on this idea of energy and belief uh, and, and a real sense that there's a momentum behind them. And you concede first all the time. So surely the one thing you do is you have an attitude of let's just keep it tight for 15. And Liverpool do the absolute opposite and have conceded within within 55 seconds. So all in. The problem with this is that Guardiola will describe this pre-match as his biggest domestic game of the year. He'll say it's one that will really see what the City side's like. City will go into it absolutely keyed up, expecting to get a barnstorm in Liverpool performance. And there's every chance that for a large portion of the game, City get a barnstorm in Liverpool performance. And then there's every chance that for three minutes across the first half or the second half, City will get a dreadful Liverpool that they will punish. So it's a really difficult game to sort of predict because all I can do is look at what Liverpool have done over the course of this season and list you moments where either as a collective or in specific minutes, senior players, one or two of them, have been absolutely dreadful in specific split seconds. So if Liverpool manage to eradicate that, then yeah, it'll probably be like a a normal Liverpool City game. But there'd be part of me if I was Pep Guardiola where I'd be saying, lads, let's have a really big first 10 because they've been conceding first. 
and then let's have a pretty patient 15 and then look to turn the screw before half time because in the patient 15 they might just give you a cheap one and then when you turn the screw before half time doubt will set in if they haven't given you a cheap one ultimately i would be before the arsenal game i was saying you want a prediction from me listen tell me what the scoreline is on 30 minutes and i'll give you the prediction i'm now at the point with this one where i have to say if you want a prediction from me tell me what the scoreline is on 60 minutes and i'll give you the prediction because the Liverpool ability at the minute to shoot themselves in the foot, and I am talking about a side that won 7-1 last night, the Liverpool ability at the minute to shoot themselves in the foot is about as spectacular as I've ever seen from an excellent football team. It is remarkable. They are capable of it any time, any place, any angle. They can take their weapon and put the hole in the sole of their foot. So until that stops, Dave, I'm not going to be going into games <laughs> against Manchester City with loads of confidence. What I do think will happen is Liverpool will play well in periods. They'll battle well in periods. They'll have a tactical plan that they'll execute well in periods. That is not the same as saying you can beat Manchester City at the moment. Yeah, I'll tell you what, that makes me nostalgic for the 90s, though. Goodness <laughs> me, I saw some of the city sides do some daft stuff in the 90s. Um, Neil, I, I am going to ask you for a prediction. We've got the charity vet coming up a bit later on, uh, so I need a scoreline from you. I, I mean, it, it sounds like you'll be rolling a dice to find out, but let's go for yeah. it. I, I, because I never want to certainly go on on an opposition uh on an opposition show and, and back against Liverpool, however much I've just talked the swines down there for um, for a few minutes. The stuff in the game there that bodes well last night against Rangers, Salah finding, finding his form. He's been playing football generally well, Salah, uh, but he's not been getting close enough to goal and finding his form in front of goal uh, as you'd like. So, But that he gets a hat-trick last night bodes well. Firmino, is, if it wasn't for the fellow who plays up front for Manchester City, Firmino would weirdly be uh, Europe's informed centre-forward, uh, returning goals at an Ian Rush-like rate. Um, I, I will... I would go with a 2-2 off the basis of the fact that I suspect, I would hope, uh, all of your other contributors will go for a Manchester City win and we are giving the charity the best possible chance. Get involved with the debate on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. So that was Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Wrap. Um, Bob, this this game is always, always a write-off. And yet, City are going to, to Anfield where Liverpool are not in good form. Um, Haaland is banging the goals in left, right and centre. Like City have not had a better opportunity, have they? Um, well, yeah, I agree to a certain extent. But then Liverpool go and win 7-1 last night. So, <laughs> like it's a timely confidence booster. Then Salah's re-emerged with a hat-trick after being non-existent, as far as I know, all season. So, it's just really bad timing, that, isn't it? I know it's only Rangers, though. So, you know, it's not It's not like... it's What, what are Rangers in the sort of English football standards? Probably like championship at best. Um, I, I am with a Scottish man on the podcast, mate. I am not getting into this discussion of where the SPL stands. Yeah, I was gonna. Uh, I was a little bit worried about that, but I've. Uh, I would. I would met, point out that bed now. I, I, I fly no flag for Rangers. Quite the opposite. Uh, but they, they did make the the uh, Europa League final uh, a few months ago. So you know that uh, most Championship teams wouldn't be doing that. So. Yeah. Uh, okay. And, and actually, I don't know if anyone watched the game. Uh, Rangers were actually really quite good in the first half last night, and Liverpool were really struggling until halftime. And Rangers collapsed when they went three-one down, and it ended up with a silly score. Um, but that score really did not reflect most of the match. So anyway, let, let's not get into the SPL via Premier League debate <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, the, the cynic says uh, to me, Bob. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know about you, but the cynic says to me, like City should go to Anfield and. 
they play their game as normal. Liverpool are struggling at the moment. City have a really good chance. So, of course, the cynic says, of course, Liverpool turn it around on Sunday and that's where they get their win. Yeah, that's very much my kind of outlook on football in general, uh, particularly with this fixture. Um, no matter what's going on with, with them or us, it's just it, it, all bets are off, really, I think. Um, it's we've, There's a reason we've struggled there uh, for years, like... Um, and I'm not sure anything's going to change this time around because there's the crowd there, which uh, whether we like to admit it or not, it does have a, an impact, I think. Um, the only difference this time, and it's such an obvious thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, is the Harlem factor because he just scores so easily. Um, and we've not had that the last couple of years, even though we've turned in some really good performances in the last two or three seasons at Anfield. So yeah. there is, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I am also pessimistic as well. <laughs> I know what you mean. Uh, Ali, I, I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna kind of um, put my optimist hat on because I always say that weird things happen at Anfield and it, and it scares me. But as Bob's just said there, City have only lost one of their last four visits there. They've won one, drawn two, but they're, they're, they're quietly turning their record around at Anfield. Quietly, and it's taken a while. I think the most significant, I and mean, there's two factors. One is obviously Haaland is a, is a huge factor, as Bob says. Um, the other one is just how bad, and in what a, a terrible state of disrepair, Liverpool's defence is at the moment. So if you combine the, the uh, Haaland factor with the Liverpool defensive chaos factor, um, it does put a very different uh, perspective on on what may come over the weekend, uh, but yeah, it it does feel a bit different this time. Um, and I don't know the the uh, the two old draws that we've had. I mean, I, I think the the one that the game that we won was in the uh, uh, pandemic season, wasn't it? Yeah, it's was behind closed doors. Yeah, yeah, which does does change it. Um, and there, there's this is a really difficult thing to talk about because it's uh, it's almost like you're flying Liverpool's flag for them. Um, but the Anfield factor is huge. It, it, you know, 12th man doesn't really begin to describe it. They're, they're a very different team when they've got a, an Anfield crowd in kind of full voice and, and you know, giving it some welly behind them. Uh, so that will still be there. Um, and I think it will be a tight game on Sunday. But I, I have never gone into a game with more optimism, in, you know, including the last couple of years, uh, and fingers crossed, you know, maybe this is the year that the, the Anfield is not quite as uh, terrifying a place. I also think that Haaland um, and generally the state of their team will probably have a dampening effect on that Anfield atmosphere as well. I think Liverpool fans are absolutely dreading this match on Sunday. They're terrified of us, um, and they won't quite be in the the same mood that the you know, same kind of bullish mood that they usually are when we go there. Yeah, I'm. I'm wondering, Bob, in a weird way, if if what City need to do to win this game is to just slow it down, um, because Liverpool like a game that's played at 100 miles an hour, and they like kind of putting pressure on teams by by playing, you know, really high intensity football. Um, so if City can get the ball, slow it down, pass it around for a bit. It it kind of it it it, it quietens the crowd. But also, as we talked about earlier, they're, they're they're not rushing the ball to Haaland anymore. There's 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 a good chance of finding him in the right spaces by doing the whole link up down the down the flanks thing. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I, I was um, reading some interview with De Bruyne earlier as well, where he's alluded to that kind of need to control the game um, because Liverpool, they're quite sort of up and down in the way they play and very sort of um, emotive is the wrong word, 
but they kind of ebb and flow quite a lot. They can be intense for 10 minutes and then it it drops off for a little bit. And they like it that way. And especially if they've got the crowd behind them, when they have got that momentum, it's quite hard to play against. Um, so, yeah, I think we definitely need to try and slow it down. And I think players like Grealish would be key to that. Um, I wouldn't want all our attackers just to be sort of the full throttle type players. So, like, for example, I wouldn't want, like, Foden and Alvarez because they're both kind of really little, quick kind of wingers or whatever. Yeah, getting forward um, quickly, run at them sort of players, yeah. Yeah, so maybe a Grealish or Mares would be ideal, but as I mentioned earlier, I don't think Mares will play in this game. So um, it would be nice to see Grealish, definitely, because I think he... he and I know um, this is kind of... Some people think it's a bit of a cop-out saying this about Grealish, but he does draw those fouls, doesn't he? And, which is a, a great way of slowing the game down um, and disrupting Liverpool's flow if, that, if he is going to play. So... Yeah, I think that would be the key. Um, and just sort of be patient with the build-up um, to Haaland because we've got every chance that we can do that. Yeah. Um, just looking at the defence, uh, Ali, it, like, what what do you think makes more sense for this one? Um, putting Akanji at, at right-back still and uh, and having Cancelo stay at left-back or moving Ake to left-back and, uh, and letting Cancelo come over to the right-hand side? I would prefer the latter. Uh, I would... Uh, I... While I accept that Gomez had a really good start to the season, um, I'm more worried about him defensively than I am going forward. He's great going forward. Uh, to be kind, he's still not fully tested uh, as, a, as a defender. I think I, I would put it that way. Um, and I think, despite the fact that his Premier League season at least has not been sparkling so far, um, I am still much more worried about Mo Salah than I am about any other Liverpool player. And the thought of putting... Um, I'm busy. Uh, Salah coming down their right towards our left. Um, I would rather have Ake there as I think our strongest left-sided defender. Um, and if that means moving Cancelo across, then then go with that. So yeah, my preference would be uh, Ake on the left, Cancelo on the right, and then whichever two, uh, presumably Akanji and Laporte. I think are probably our our best options in the middle, but um, but whatever works. Uh, but really, I'm, I, I think uh, the the game will be decided uh, in midfield and the forwards. Um, their, uh, their attacking line uh, will cause a degree of chaos to any defensive lineup we can put out, uh, whether you put Aki on the left or... or uh, Gomez or Cancelo or whoever else, um, they're still going to have Mosala coming at us. But if we can control the midfield and make sure that the ball just doesn't get to Mosala uh, or uh, does so as seldom as we can possibly manage, um, that's how we win the game. Uh, so I think you know the the superiority now of uh, what I hope would be Rodri, Bernardo, and KDB over any midfield three or they've actually been playing four two four effectively in, in recent games Liverpool. Um so I, I don't see how they cope with that. Um and the, I mean, our defence is the least of my worries, particularly when I look at their defence. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, right, so it was close but no cigar for recent games on the charity bet. That means we're still on £205 raised so far for the Man City Fans Food Bank Support Group. They're helping the Trussell Trust and Manchester Central Food Bank to support people who are below the poverty line in Greater Manchester. William Hill has given each of us a £10 correct score single and our winnings are going to the group again this season. Uh, we heard earlier on that Neil from the Anfield Rap is going for a two-all draw. That's 12 to 1 and £120 if he's right. Ali, um, what are you having for this one? I'll have uh, 1-3 to City. Uh, 3-1 City is also 12-1 to 1 and £120 if you're right. Bob, uh, after predicting a tight game, tell us your score, mate. <laughs> well, I did want 3-1, but that was already taken. Um, <laughs> so I've gone for a cautiously optimistic slash pessimistic 4-2 to City. 4-2 to City, uh, which would be a wild game and a wild result because it'd be uh, 35 to 1 and 350 quid if you're right. So I hope you're right. Uh, remember, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change and please gamble responsibly. For more on responsible gambling, take a look at begambleaware.org. You see stats pop up all the time about clubs and players and you want to know that exact thing about City. There's an answer. Statcity.co.uk Want to find out all of the players who played alongside club legends like David Silva, Sergio Aguero or Vincent Company? Or maybe you'd like to know which team found it hardest to score past Joe Hart. You can find out City's record in every competition, at every stadium and under every manager. Just go to statcity.co.uk and browse away. That's statcity.co.uk Get your ears around our bonus episodes every Monday. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Now then, uh, if you're an Instagram user, you might have found your way to an account that posts videos of old Manchester City goals. Got a hankering to see Robbie Fowler scuff in a last-minute winner against Norwich in 2005? Maybe you want to see Uwe Rosler's brave header against Lincoln in 1996? Or perhaps you've just remembered Danny Allsop breaking clear to convert Kevin Horlock's hoof forward against Notts County in 1998? Well, they're just some of the goals that have been posted recently by Niall, the man behind the Retro City Goals account. I've been speaking to him to find out why he's decided to do it I started by explaining how calling goals from the early noughties retro made me feel old yeah I'm the same um, I'm, I'm only 31 myself and I don't think it's the I don't think it's the best name is it for these goals because I, I I remember these seasons really well particularly um, 06 or 07 season that only feels like five minutes ago to me as well um, but yeah I've, I've, I've chosen the name now I've got to stick with it haven't I yeah, fifteen more than fifteen years ago. That now isn't it? The uh, the Stuart Pearce ten goals at home season. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a while. Um, so let's. I mean, in terms of of the goals that you pick, um, they, they ha- what makes them retro? What what kind of fits the category? Are we are we talking pre takeover only here? Yeah. So I, I I debated this. Um, sadly, so, you know I don't waste my evenings, do I? Um, uh, don't yeah, we all? I, I, <laughs> I, I've debated this. I think for me. It, it's from more of a personal perspective, really. The, the first season I properly remember um, is 97-98. Like, properly with distinctive memories of that season. I've got selective memories of 96-97. Um, really odd ones, just like Phil Neal being manager. Uh, King Cladzi, just in general, um, losing 3-0 away at Wolves. And I think I, I remember waiting what felt like an age to play Brentford in the FA Cup. So they're the things that I remember from that season. They're my... my proper earliest memories of City so I'd sort of categorise City as being 
at the worst, I'd say. Not that season, but around that season. And then up until, you know, it acts as a bit of a bookend, I suppose, the 06 07 season where it was really bad. And I was 15, 16 at the time. So I had a bit more of a sort of an informed view about football and how bad things were. Um, but I have genuinely debated whether or not to include goals from the Sven season, but that felt like a turning point to me. I know it was a bit of a false dawn, you know, what happened after Christmas and everything, but I felt like the club turned a bit of a page um, in 2007. And, and it's one of my favourite seasons anyway, because it was just so good compared yeah. to the dross that we had for the previous two years, especially. Yeah, so I mean, in, in terms of of picking the goals, then um, kind of what thought goes into into which ones you pick? Because like, it, it is just a case. Is it just a case of of anything and everything that that City have scored in the past? Because there are there are some goals on there that I that I I've watched them and I've thought that that was that was not a tidy goal. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's no glamour in it. <laughs> it it's literally. I'm making myself out to be a right side of the way, but I've, I've got a spreadsheet uh, because when I started doing it, I didn't think it'd take off, to be honest with you. It was just, I, I, I look back and I think I started in 2019, so I can't even blame COVID for it, but I think COVID spurred me on to do it because I was just bored out of my mind. Um, but there's no rhyme or reason to what goals I pick. I just want to try and get everyone on there I think there's a few goals that I'm missing which I can't find but there is no science behind it it's literally um, right I've not got that one on there yet so I'm going to pick that you know Lee Bradbury's header against Stoke I don't think anybody wants to see it but it's going on Um, so yeah I think that there's a few if I remember rightly there's a few accounts I think on Instagram and Twitter that put goals up of of City you know games of, of years gone by but it's generally sort of themed so you know if we're playing Newcastle at the weekend it'll be goals were scored against Newcastle and, and they're, they're far better than mine the quality and, and they're really good at running them but for me it's just you know there's there's a very sort of specific feeling about that era for me from 96 to 2007 yeah I feel it yeah I don't long for it I don't miss it necessarily I think I was quite blessed to be young so I didn't understand just how shit we were um, up until sort of turning 16 and Stuart Pearce gave me a couple of years of that so yeah it's just it's literally just a hobby for me and putting goals up that you know I've not seen um and it, it sort of goes back to when I was I don't know from about eight year old onwards every Christmas it was just I'd get the season review DVD or video that that, that was the annual Christmas present for me and then for whatever reason from about 2003 onwards whoever produced the DVDs at City just cut out random goals so if we'd been beaten 3-1 um, the goal that we'd scored wouldn't be on the DVD and, and to a lot of people even to me at the time it like, didn't really matter but looking back there's a few goals from my childhood that I've never seen um, I think you know there's a couple from the, the year we got relegated from the Premier League in 2001 I've, I've never seen them and I can't find them and it's just become a bit of an obsession now trying to get them so uh, yeah it's, it's sort of turned into you know, it doesn't take up much of my time, but it's good to see that people are enjoying it. And I've had I've had people contact me as well saying, um, you know, I think Dalian Atkinson goal against Stoke in '97. That that was, you know, some lad contacted me and said that was the first goal he'd ever seen, and he'd never seen it before. So it's just nice to to put them up, and people have a lot of memories, don't they? That are you know quite close to them. Amazing. I, I, have you been in? Have, have any of the players that have scored them been in touch and interacted with you? Yeah. Um, Paolo one shot liked a lot of them, which was a bit surreal. Um, 
because he was one of my favourite players. So I don't think he follows me though, but you know, I can't have everything. Um, Jim Whitley follows the account and I think he commented on a goal that he scored against Notts County in the League Cup um, and I don't think he'd seen it. So that, that that was quite nice. There were a couple of other players that have commented. I think Lee Peacock got in contact, even though he'd never scored for us. I think um, he'd been tagged in, in one of the goals he'd set up or um, a picture that I'd put up or something. So yeah, there's quite a few and, and it's weird because these are the players that I grew up with and had a lot of time for. Um, they were like, you know, an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, you don't know any better and the, the sort of your heroes that you, you know, looking back, they were just League One Championship players compared to what we've got now. But, yeah, it's um, it's just it's really nice, isn't it? Just to interact with uh, ex City players, and um, yeah, as I said, I think I think Jim Whitby's the main one that follows the account. Uh, one shop, um, that 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 was my favourite one. That that <laughs> when I saw that he'd shared some of the goals on his story. So um, yeah, might have a might have a bit of a following in Costa Rica, unbeknownst to me. Yeah, that would be great. Um, I, I, what's the feeling like then? Because like I've I'm I, I'm not going to brand it as sad because I've done exactly the same thing for, throughout my life of collecting city goals and and rewatching them and stuff like that. Um, but you're right, there 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 are goals that you can't find and your goals that you can't see. So what's that feeling like when suddenly you stumble across a YouTube video and there it is? There's a goal that you didn't know existed on the internet. Yeah, the, <laughs> there is a sense of achievement, which, um, you know, I'm, I'm not proud of. There is a sense of achievement when I find one. And I will probably text my brother. My brother's 25, I think, 26. So he, he's a few years younger than me. And um, there was one goal in particular. I think it was and Andy Cole scored against Wigan in the FA Cup. It's not a good goal. It's not a memorable game. It's not a memorable season. But... I think my brother was at an age when that DVD came out, similar to what I was, about 10 year old, and he'd never seen the goal back. So he's been looking for that goal for the best part of two years, and I think he found it for me. And that <laughs> that, that was particularly amusing. Um, yeah, again, I don't, I don't know who's got any fondness for Andy Cole's goal against Wigan in the fourth round of the FA Cup in 2006. I don't know who's been gatekeeping it as well, because it was on daily motion in really poor quality. So... Uh, yeah, it's it's always nice when I find one. Another one for me, I think Jeff Jeff Whitley scored against Everton away at Goodison. I've no memory of that game, and I think City got battered three one four one, um, and and that was that was a that was particularly amusing to find was, that goal. I was at that game. Oh really? Um, yeah, and uh, I I cried at the end of it because that was the game I realised City were going down. <laughs> oh, God, that that brought back some memories when I put that up then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, well. That, that's the thing as well. It's like it, it's I. Anyone who listens to the podcast regularly knows that I love a good bout of nostalgia, and my nostalgia era is exactly this era. So, they, like your yeah. account speaks entirely to me. Um, like, what what's the response been to it? Really good, I think. Really good. Um, I've, I've not had anybody, you know, other than myself, call me sad, but they're probably not doing that to my face, are they? So, yeah, it's, it's been really positive. I think that I get quite a lot of interaction from City fans on there. Um, randomly get a few sort of opposition fans piping up now and again, which is nice. But yeah, I, I think it's positive. I think everyone's got that view, really. Like I said before, I don't, I don't think anybody longs for those days again. But there's a certain appreciation for them for City fans of a certain age. And as I, said, I don't think we miss them, but we can appreciate just just how bad we were. Um, and, and when we were good in that era, we we really did enjoy it. You know, thinking of like the Keegan season, and, and for me. Um, you know, 
I know it's not the best season in our history because we were at our lowest point, but that year we got promoted and, and beat Gillingham. That that was like my first proper season as a City fan. I, I know I've, I've got massive memories of 97, 98, which is even worse, but I was I was lucky to be, what, six, seven, eight-year-old at the time. So I didn't fully comprehend just how bad things had got. So, yeah, it's um, it's really positive, really positive. Yeah. Uh, are there any goals that you're missing that you're uh, absolutely desperate to get your hands on? And I'm thinking if anybody listening to this might have them, um, <laughs> then then we can maybe put out an appeal for them. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think I, I bet if anyone's got these, God bless you. There's, there's two goals against Wimbledon in the League Cup in 2000, which I cannot find for love and the money. Um, I think one chop and go to score. And then there's... A goal against Villa from the same season, uh, which I think goal to scores at home when we get beat, and Dion Dublin and Paul Merson, I think, have, have the games of their life. Um, and then there's one particular game. I think, sadly, I think I've got all of Lee Bradbury's goals for City. I think I'm the only place in the world you can go to and find and watch all of Lee Bradbury's goals for City. But there's a game from 97-98 against Huddersfield away, and I think City win 3-0 or 3-1. And I can't find any of those goals. So they're the main ones. Um, and then the last one, to round off the the greatest season in our history in 2006-2007, I'm missing Samaras's penalty away at Chesterfield. So if anybody's got that, um, yeah, get in touch and I can complete the collection. It's not a very big one, as you can imagine, from 2006-2007. But yeah, just need uh, just need Samaras's penalty, I think, to uh, to complete that. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. But don't worry, it'll be over soon. So that was Niall from Retro City Goals on Instagram. Go and give it a follow. It's great fun. Uh, plenty of uh, of old City Goals to watch on there. You can waste a good few hours just scrolling through the feed. Um, it got me thinking this one uh, about kind of pre-takeover goals. So I'm going to I'm going to start off first off by asking you for uh, both for for a nomination for your favorite uh, pre-takeover city goal. Ali, have you got any that uh, that immediately spring to mind? Uh I could pick any one of about a dozen different kinky goals. Uh Georgi Kankladze is probably the first city player that I I properly fell in love with. Um but of all of them I, I had to go back and and yeah, I use this as an excuse to spend about another hour watching King Gladzi clips on YouTube last night. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the one, the, the little dink against Southampton is, I think, the uh, the, the pinnacle. It's just such a, a glorious, wonderful a dribble and, and just the the elegance, the balance, the cheek of it was just a beautiful thing. Yeah, all left foot as well. Uh, yeah. No point did Southampton go. We should probably get him off his left foot. Um, <laughs> Bob, any, any for you? Well, I, I was thinking that same goal, actually, funnily enough. Um, I mean, I was watching it again uh, this morning and it is hilarious, like, how bad the defending is, So, Like, which, when I was a little boy, like, playing football at primary school every single day, I just didn't think that. thought it was incredible, but it's just laughably bad how, how, the def- <laughs> how poor the defending is. And I love, after he's passed um, the last defender, he takes about eight little steps before he chips it. Like, but he only travels about half a metre. It's just it's really weird to look at. He only did have little legs, though, to be fair. But... That is true. That is, that is true, yeah. I nominated uh, Nicholas Jensen against Leeds for this one uh, because, like, genuinely, 
completely, like, possibly even still to this day, the best goal I've ever seen. Um, just completely unexpected from uh, from a volley on the left hand side. Um, it, it got me out of my seat that one, and it was one that uh, that I remember. I remember jumping up from my seat at Main Road and shouting, "What a goal!" When that when that left his foot. Are there any for you, uh, Bob, that that you think of when uh, that that you saw live that you were like, "I have just seen a wonderful goal." The first one that came to mind immediately was the Alano free kick against Newcastle. Um, I think it was in 2007. Just an unbelievable goal. I think we, we won 3-1, I think, that day, and it was like in the 90th minute. And that free kick, I've never seen a free kick like it before or since. It just didn't seem to curl. It was just perfectly straight into the top left-hand corner. And it was seemed about 30 yards out. Um, and at that point, like in the context of, Sporting City, like coming off two years, the back of two years of Stuart Pearce, to see something that incredible live was just really special. So yeah, that's easily my choice. Yeah, you say that. I've I, I, the two that I've nominated for the be- for best goals that I've seen live. That isn't Nicholas Jensen. Both came in the in the Pearce era. Um, I, <laughs> I was at the FA Cup game against Preston because uh, Preston was my uh, university town or, or city. Um, and so I, I went to that FA Cup game um, and Michael Ball's opener was a brilliant goal. He, uh, he, he, he smashed it in from the edge of the box in off the post uh, after Bernardo Karadi had kind of done a, this weird flick on the edge of the box and then volleyed it into, into the uh, far corner, but it had hit the post and come back out. Um, and then later on in that game, uh, Stephen Ireland scored a volley that was... Uh, it, it was. It, it didn't. Nicky Weaver took a free kick from midway in the city half, and the ball did not touch the ground from going from Weaver's foot to the back of the Preston net. Uh, Weaver hoofed it long. Samaras headed it inside. Karadi took two touches, like headed it up and then volleyed it across. And then Ireland volleys it into the bottom corner. It's a it's a fantastic goal that does not do uh, that. That that team just did not deserve to score. If you know what I mean. <laughs> they, they were both incredible. Those I remember that game really uh, distinctly as well because it was one of the few times at that like few years where City were on BBC. Um, which was really rare. Um, and so, yeah, those goals were absolute screamers. So I think they're good choices, Mooney. Yeah. Ali, any for you that uh, that you were there to see? Yeah, well, I'll go back to, uh, I think it was only my second ever City game. I, I, for, for the historical detail, uh, I moved to Manchester in uh, the October 1992. In fact, uh, exactly, almost to, almost to the day, uh, it would have been 30 years ago today that I moved to Manchester, so there you go. Um, but I moved to Rushroom, uh, literally about 150 yards from Main Road, uh, and went to a couple of games in, in my first few months down there. Uh, and I think the second one was the FA Cup match against Spurs, uh, which ended up 4-2 to them. Yeah. But our You know what's coming, yeah. don't you? Yeah. Uh, our second goal... Um, when Terry Phelan uh, picked up the ball in his own half in a lot of space and just took off. We were talking about the defending for, for Kinky's goal against Southampton. <laughs> well, go back and look at this one again because like, it makes those Southampton defenders look positively accomplished. Um, but <laughs> he just he just marched. Like, uh, well, no, that's the, the wrong word. Um, he he glided right through, the right along the pitch. Um, took out, I counted, six uh, different Spurs players, three of which uh, were within about two yards of each other around the 18-yard line, and he just went straight through them uh, and and slotted it perfectly into the corner. Um, and it was a remarkable goal. Um, it was uh, yeah, particularly remarkable because I, I, like I said, I had gone along, wasn't even really a City fan. I was 
I was there with a West Ham fan who had got the tickets, my friend who was a Spurs fan. <laughs> and so we were actually, we were uh, somewhere around the Spurs fans. And then shortly after the uh, uh, Terry Field had scored his goal, um, there was a pitch invasion from City fans from the Kipax first, I think. Um, and then some Spurs fans started going on and it all started kicking off. And this was still, you know, you know the, the, the days of Heisel and Hillsborough and stuff were fairly fresh memories then. Um, and me and my mate just kind of turned, looked at each other, was like, no, we're out of here. Uh, so after, shortly after the feeling goal, we just uh, headed for the exit and, and uh, headed for the nearest pub. Uh, so I never did see the final whistle. Uh, thankfully, the um, the scenes on the pitch were, were uh, died down fairly quickly, and I yeah. don't think anyone actually did get hurt. Uh, but it was certainly a, a memorable way to begin going watching Manchester City. Yeah, definitely. So uh, to finish your first game with the sight of a police horse pissing all over the penalty <laughs> yeah. area, it's, uh, <laughs> exactly. yeah, quite quite yeah. the memory. Um, any any alley for you that uh, players that uh, that very rarely scored that uh, that you know the, the ones where you went, goodness me, he's scored. I can't believe it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well. Th- th- at the time, uh, not particularly. Um, and I, when I when I was thinking about your question, um, I guess I was surprised because it was in his debut. But a, a goal that absolutely will always stick in my mind uh, was Michael Richards' uh, debut goal against Villa in what would have been two thousand and six, I think, probably. Um, Let, let's be honest, an... mate. Nobody remembers the goal. You know what's coming. You absolutely know what's coming, don't you? I will. I will mention it because I did look again. It was an absolutely cracking bullet header, uh, made better because David James had been doing a very David James thing and had gone marching up for the uh, for the final uh, corner of the game, and the ball just flew an inch over David James's head um, and Micah just connected absolutely four square and it flew into the corner, uh, absolutely cracking bullet header. And then, of course, the really memorable thing was his debut interview after. And it did make me laugh a little while ago when he was on, on one of the uh, Five Live Monday Night Clubs or whatever. Um, and he was talking about all the media training he'd had as a young player. And I was like, mate, the very first thing you did with a camera go point <laughs> was drop an F-bomb on live TV. Uh, bless him. His, uh, his, his uh, media career has, has gone from strength to strength since then. Uh, um, but yeah, that was a that was a great goal from an unlikely source. Yeah, two two for me that stood out on this one uh, were uh, I, I nominated Gerard Vikings at Stoke uh, because uh, the City were down in the third tier, they needed to win, and they they went away to Stoke, and a corner came in, and I remember Vikings, it, it, the ball seemed to hang in the air for an age, and I think he headed it up to himself and then volleyed it into the into the top corner, brilliant finish. Uh, another one just because. Um, uh, he was a midfielder, but someone who kind of you went. You maybe expect to score more than he did. Um, go and look it up on YouTube because it is still there. Ian Bishop scoring in, in uh, an FA Cup tie against Leeds. Um, uh, most memorable for me uh, because Andy Gray says uh, of him, "We know this about Ian Bishop. He has got lovely feet, and the way he says it <laughs> makes it sound like he's some sort of foot fetishist rather than uh, a co-commentator." But it's it's like the goal it does not detract from the goal at all. Um, any for you, Bob? Um, yeah, the one uh, that stands out for me is uh, Sylvan Distan versus Villa. Uh, I think it was in 2006 where yeah. he basically just runs the length of the pitch and, and scores. Um, I love it how he basically brings it out of his own box, plays a 1-2. I don't know who with, but once he receives the ball back, he's just inside the opposition's half. And he's clean through, and isn't he? <laughs> pretty much, yeah. He only takes three more touches. Like There's one that goes 
about a meter in front of him, and then the next one he just boots it forward. It's like he knew he had the pace on the the defender and the strength, and he just breezes past the defender. Then the the third touch is the finish. It's amazing. There's always one prick, isn't there, in the school right schoolyard who's quicker than everybody else who just gets it and boots <laughs> it as far as they can because they know they'll get there first. That's just just what it made me think of. I have to uh, admit that that was me, mate. <laughs> the only thing I can do in a football pitch. <laughs> yeah, I can chase it, but don't expect me to do anything else. Don't, don't yeah. know what will happen when I get there. Um, the final one I wanted to ask about, and I genuinely haven't got an answer to this, uh, and I wonder if it's partly because I'm I, I do so many things about City nostalgia in the noughties that I, I can't, I, I don't forget players, but favourite goal by a player that you'd forgotten about until I asked you to look at these uh, old retro goals. Does anybody have anything to stand out on this one? It's not a player that I'd say I forget about, but it's definitely a goal that I'd forgotten about and and probably a, a goal that is too easily forgotten about. Um, we talk a lot about the, uh, the, the, the goals that changed Manchester City's history in the playoffs, particularly. We talk about um, the the Gillingham goals or, or the the penalty shootouts and all the rest of it. Um, on the basis that uh, if those goals hadn't been scored, everything that happened after would never have happened. You know, the takeover and, and you know, our, our recent history. Well, there was another one. It was in two thousand and four uh, when we had a match against Newcastle. When they were going for Champions League, I think, uh, and we were we needed one point or or maybe two points to avoid relegation in two thousand and four. Had we gone down, then everything that happened after uh, we'd probably never have seen. Anyway, a, a player that gets too little credit in the history of the city annals, Paolo Onechop. Yes. Always loved Paolo Onechop, um, uh, playing alongside Anelka. Uh, and he kind of bent down and stooped really low, about 18 yards out, uh, and scored an absolutely screaming header, beautiful header, really difficult technique, uh, and we won the game 1-0, and City stayed up, uh, and if it hadn't been for that goal, um, you know, everything that has happened to us since may well not have happened. Uh, so a goal, if not a player that's too often forgotten, a goal that is too often uh, forgotten, uh, take a bow, Paolo, one shot. Yeah, Bob. Anything to, uh, to to add to that one? I'll, I'll, I will also accept goals that that people forgot rather than players that people forgot. Well, I had to really think hard about this because um, I was looking through the the Retro City goals account just to aid my memory a, a bit because um, I have a bit of a weird blackout about the early noughties. from about two thousand and one to about two thousand and four. I just really struggled to remember anything about it. Um, but yeah, uh, the one I came across, which I thought that's a really good goal. But just it's so insignificant. Is uh, Hatton Trebelsi against United when we oh lost three one? Oh God! I, I will have that. Yeah, I'll have but that yeah. one. Yeah, <laughs> that, that absolutely. Brief. <laughs> it was a really good goal, but um, we were losing two 0 at that point, and I think he scored in about the eighty second minute. Um, left foot from the edge of the box. I think it hits the bar on the way in. Keeper had no chance. A lovely finish, but uh, we went on to lose three one. And I mean, I. I just don't remember anything else about that that game at all. Yeah, I'll take it because I again I, I had completely forgot. He's possibly the only player that I'd completely forgotten about in this <laughs> that, uh, in, that, that had scored in that time. Yeah, what a shout! What an absolute shout that is. Uh, right, well that brings this week's Blue Moon podcast to an end. Thank you very much to my guests, Ali Fogg. Absolute pleasure. And Bob Tool. Cheers, Benny. There's a clip of this week's Patreon bonus show coming up. I'll be back next week to review whatever happens at Anfield. So join me then. 
that was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please give the show a rating and a review where you can. And don't forget, you can listen without the ads by signing up to our Patreon. You'll also get an extra episode each Monday. Here's a clip of this week's. There was a guy outside the stadium and he was selling these little pin badges and it said MCFC Crest. And it says promoted 1989. And I thought, it's a bit premature, but okay, I'll buy one. In the, in the ground, his saw is right up at the back of the stand, um, right on, literally ahead, his inches on the roof. Um, and it was one of those games, it was a really warm day. And and that, Bradford only had, I think, two attempts, one went in, and, and we was just literally all over them. The pitch with the ball was bobbling, it was a really rough pitch, and I think we hit the woodwork two or three times, and the, the keeper was, the, and the defenders were blocking everything. I've, I've, I've learned all this subsequently, that once a defender had a radio on him and ran onto the field and, and, and sort of grabbed Paul Blake to tell him that Palace were winning 4-0 and they just got to half-time. And uh, and when David White did get past their, 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 their centre-back and squared it, Trevor Moore to score, it was, to, to coin the phrase you hear about these days, in the Tevising, it was proper limbs. You can listen to more of that at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast and join us again next time for another episode. Yeah.